All right, well, we're there in First uh, Corinthians chapter number 10. And if you remember uh, last, last week, we went through the first part of First uh, Corinthians 10. And uh, just want to remind you that the, the chapter deals is, is, is given us examples that are to be used for our admonition. If you look at verse 5 again, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says this, But with many of them God was not well, was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Notice verse 6, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So notice the Bible says that he's, he's going to give us examples with the intention that we should learn from that, that we should learn to not lust after evil things. Look, look at verse 11. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, all these things happen unto them for examples that they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So in this passage, he goes through in four verses and gives us four examples that are meant to be for our admonition. They're meant to be for our instruction. And last week, what we did is we went through the first two examples. If you remember, the first example was that of placing an idol before God. And what he does is he goes back to these famous Old Testament stories, and these famous Old Testament stories all have a common theme. And the, key, the theme is this, that God ended up killing a bunch of people at the end of it, you know. And you're not really, you're, sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, you don't realize how many times God sent down a plague or God sent down, you know, an angel uh, to, to, to bring destruction as a result for sin. And the first example was there in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, and it was the example of placing an idol before God. And that was, of course, the famous story of building the, uh, the, the golden calf, and, and we went through that in detail last week. And then the second example is in, is in verse 8, and it was about the fornication that happened with the heathen of the land. And we learned there about partaking in fornication and also tolerating fornication. And, and we, we talked about that. So what I'd like to do uh, tonight is go through the second two examples, uh, exa- which is example number three and example number four, and just go through, and we're going to go back to the Old Testament story. We're going to learn what it is that God is trying to help us learn there. So in verse 9, we find the third example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 9. And notice what the Bible says. It says, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. So basically, every example so far has given us a hint as to what Old Testament story he is re- referring to. If, if you look at verse 7, he says this, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So the hint of the story is in that, in that quote, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play, because that's quoted from Exodus 32, so we know that that's referring to the golden calf incident. In verse 8, he says, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them also committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. We see that number there, and there's a similar number uh, that we saw in, in Numbers uh, 25 or 21 uh, was what we were looking at there. So in this verse, in verse 9, he talks about tempting Christ, and then the hint as to what Old Testament story he's referring to is at the end of the verse there where he says, we're destroyed of serpents. So this story is found in Numbers chapter number 21. And I'd like you to just uh, go there with me, Numbers chapter 21 in your Bible. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers 21. And we're going to leave Numbers and come back to it. So make sure you put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there. Put your bulletin there because there's two, the, the, the two examples are both in the book of Numbers. So we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. But he says here, neither let us tell. Christ. 
And that word tempt, and I'm not going to take the time to develop this because we just don't, don't have the time tonight, but if you find other places where the Bible said that God was tempted or that Christ was tempted, in, in reference, we're not talking about the temptation of Christ, you know, in the wilderness with the devil. We're talking about when, when the people tempted God in the wilderness. Another word that is used as a, as, as a synonym for the word tempt there is to provoke. And what the Bible is saying there is, you know, that God is, he's not being tempted to sin in this sense, but he's being tempted or he's being provoked to completely destroy the children of Israel because of their sin. So he says, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpent. So what is the story? We'll go to Numbers 21 and let's, let's look at it. We'll start in verse number four. And I want you to notice, it, and, and I'll go ahead and just tell you, the lesson from example number three is this, complaining about God's provision complaining about God's provision. You know, nothing bothers God more than a people who complain about the provisions that he gives them and the fact that God takes care of you and God takes care of me. And, and when we complain about it, it bothers God. And you know what? I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm the most spiritual person on earth or whatever, but I'll tell you, if there's some, one thing God and I have in common is that I can't stand being around people who just complain. You know, when people are constantly just complaining. You get around negative people and everything's just a big complaint. Nothing's ever good. The work is always bad. The weather's always bad. You know, everything's always bad. It's just, I just don't want to be around people like that. You know, I'm not the most positive person in the world, but I just don't want to live my life just always down about something, you know, mad about something, upset about something. And here we see it in this story. Numbers 21, look at verse 4. I want you to notice the first thing that happens to these people. And the first thing that happens, you know, you kind of aren't upset with them yet, but I want you to notice the first thing that happens is that they get discouraged. Numbers 21 and verse 4, the Bible says this, and they journeyed from, um, from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea uh, to compass the land of Edom. And the, notice what it says, and the soul of the people was much discouraged. Now look, you can't fault somebody for being discouraged. We all go through times in life when we get a little discouraged, when we get a little, you know, just uh, uh, upset with how things are going and thinking that things could go better. And notice what it says. They were much discouraged. Why? Notice what it says. Because of the way. Because of the way, because of what God had them do, because what, the way that God was having them go, it discouraged them. And listen to me, in your life and in my life, we need to realize that sometimes we're going to get discouraged because of the way. Sometimes as we go on our journey in life, as we're walking through life, as we're running our race, as we're finishing our course, we're going to think that, man, I, I, I wish things would be going a little different in this area. And maybe I wish things were going a little better in this area. Or maybe I wish that I was having a little more success in this area or in that area of life. And here's what you need to understand. All of us from time to time are going to be discouraged because of the way. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we shouldn't live our lives in discouragement, but we should just realize that that's something that we all deal with. We all are going to struggle with discouragement from time to time. The problem is, the problem is when we allow discouragement and we allow ourselves who are discouraged to then cross the line into not only being discouraged, but being disgruntled. Notice verse 5. We read in verse 4 that they were discouraged, but in verse 5, the Bible says this, And the people spake against God. And the people spake against God 
and against Moses. I want you to notice that's a theme you find with the children of Israel. They're constantly speaking against God, and then they're speaking against Moses. And here's all you need to understand. When you are speaking against the God-given leadership in your life, you are not only speaking against that leader, you're speaking against God. You know, when you go to work, and you just, you know, badmouth the boss and badmouth the boss and he doesn't know what he's doing and I would run the business better and I would do this. You know what? God is the one that gave you that job. God is the one that put that man, you know, over you or in charge of you. And here's all you need to do. When you speak against the God-given leadership, look, you teenagers, when you speak against your mom and when you speak against your dad, you know you're really speaking against God. And, and, and you wives, when you speak and complain against your husband, you're really just speaking against God. Because it's, it's God. Look, it was God that placed Moses in that position to lead the children of Israel. And it's interesting because if you, and, and here's why I bring it up, because if you ask the children of Israel, they probably would say, oh no, you know, it's just Moses. We're just mad at Moses. But look, when you're disgruntled with the God-given leadership in your life, you are disgruntled with God. And the people speak against God and against Moses. Wherefore, notice what they're saying about Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die? They're like, why did you bring us here to die in the wilderness? I want you to notice, they got discouraged. That's going to happen. They got discouraged because of the way. They got discouraged because things got hard. They got discouraged because things didn't work out and they didn't end up in Canaan land as soon as they thought they were going to it. Things didn't go the way they thought they were going to. And that's fine. All of us from time to time will get discouraged. And how we learn to respond to discouragement will say a lot about our maturity in Christ. But these people got discouraged and then they got disgruntled. And they started complaining. And then they got upset. Notice the third step, verse 5. Not only did they get discouraged, and not only did they get disgruntled, but then they got dissatisfied. Notice verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Notice what they said. For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Now I want you to notice what they just said. Because they're complaining about the fact that God is feeding them with manna. And look, the children of Israel, these were, these were hard people. I mean, these people complained a lot. These people had a lot of issues. They had a lot of problems. But before we start, you know, throwing a lot of stones at the children of Israel, just imagine, you know, how you would be doing if you were going to get up and eat manna every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, for the next 40 years. We, we may start complaining a little bit too, all right? So I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, we're all spiritual and they were, you know, but here's the thing. It's what God provided for them. And you say, well, they shouldn't complain about the manna that God has given for them. But then, you know what? You and I shouldn't complain about where we live. We shouldn't complain about what we drive. We shouldn't complain about what, what, uh, what we wear. We shouldn't complain about, you know, the situation we find. Because as much as God was providing for them in the wilderness, God is providing for you. I mean, it's God who gives you the power to get strength. You men, you get up and complain about your job. But as much as God was providing the bread for them every day, he's provided your job and your work and your position in life. And I want you to notice their complaint. They said, for there is no bread. 
Notice, they said, for there is no bread, neither is there any water. And then they said this, and our soul loathes, they said, we're, we're, we're tired of, we're sick of this light bread. And I, I want to ask them this question. Wait a minute. I thought you said there was no bread. I mean, isn't that what it says? For there is no bread. And then they say, well, our soul loathes this light bread. And you know, they're not, what they meant to say, here's what you, if you called them on it, here's what they say. Well, it's not that there's no bread. It's just that the bread we've got is the bread. We don't like it. Do you understand that? See, we, we go around and complain about, well, I don't like this. Huh? And, it, you know, complain about your house. And you say, well, I, you know, we need a bigger house. And we need a better house. And we, we need a better job. And it's like, you know, oh, do, do, you, do you need a house? I mean, are you homeless? Do you not have a house? Oh, well, I got a house. I just don't like the one I've got. I got a job. I just don't like the one I've got. I've got a husband. I just don't like the one I've got. You know, it, 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 they say, well, there's no bread. And it's like, oh, really? Well, it, well, there is bread. We just, the one we got, we don't like. And listen to me. When we get dissatisfied, when we get disgruntled, when we get discouraged, it bothers God. It upsets God. Because we should learn to be content in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Is what the Bible says. And here these people were complaining and upset with God and saying, well, there's no bread, there's no water, our soul loatheth this light bread. And you say, well, how does God respond? Well, look at verse 6. Numbers 21 and verse 6. And the Lord said, fiery serpents. You know the story. Among the people. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord. Notice what they said to Moses. We have spoken against the Lord and against thee. The serpents worked. The serpents, look, sometimes God has to send fiery serpents to wake us up a little bit. I, I tell people all, all the time, you say, I'm, 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 I'm struggling and, I'm, and I got this and I got that and I feel like the judgment of God is upon me. And, and not every time something bad happens to you is it the judgment of God. But look, every, when, when, when fiery serpents start showing up, you might want to ask, is there something I'm doing that God doesn't like? Is there something I'm doing that God is upset with? And here they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And you know the story in John chapter 3. The Lord Jesus Christ refers back to the story and refers to the fact that he would one day be lifted up in the same way that this serpent was lifted up. And you know, this is where we get that song, Look and Live. Because they were supposed to look at the serpent, and if they looked at the serpent, if in faith they looked at the serpent, they would be healed. And, and that's all a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not preaching out of John, and I'm not really necessarily preaching out of this passage, so we won't develop that too far, but there is that uh, uh, implication there in that, in that idea. Look at verse 9. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Look and live, my brother, live. And, and here's what you need to understand. And you, and, and, and you say, well, why is Paul bringing this up in 1 Corinthians 10? Remember, this is all an example or an example for us for our admonition. So what is the admonition? Here's the admonition, all right? You ready? Write this down. Quit complaining. That's it. Quit complaining. 
Stop complaining. And there's nothing wrong with trying to get better in life and trying to do better and, and, and get a better job and get a raise and live in a nicer neighborhood. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. But when you're a complainer, there's something wrong with that. And we should learn to be satisfied people. And we should learn to be people who can say, you know what, if I, just, if I drive that beat-up vehicle for the rest of my life, that's okay. Because that's what God has provided for me. And Paul is admonishing us, and he's trying to teach us and saying, hey, quit complaining. You might get bit by a rattlesnake, all right? <laughs> that's what he's teaching us there. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. Keep your place there in Numbers 21. Um, we're going we're gonna to come back to Numbers 1 Corinthians 10. Let me give you the second example. The second example for tonight, the fourth example in the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10. He says this, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. All right? Now, I showed you how every, every example, right? The example in verse 9, the example in verse 8, and the example in verse 7, all had a way for us to be able to connect it back to an Old Testament story. The example in verse um, 7, we saw that it had that quote, right? The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We were able to connect that back to the story in Exodus 32. Then the second example had that number, which we were able to connect back to an Old Testament story. The third example talked about the uh, they were destroyed of serpents. So we were able to connect that back to Numbers 21. This example, the fourth example, is the one where a lot of people don't know exactly what Old Testament story is being referred to. And because there's so many Old Testament stories where God is just destroying people, you know, a lot of people take guesses as to which one is being referred to. I will tell you, in my opinion, I believe the Old Testament story that's being referred to is found in Numbers chapter 16. And I'm going to explain to you why I believe that. But let's get a little bit through the story, and then I'll, 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 I'll show you that, and I think it'll be clear why that is. But go to Numbers chapter 16 with me. Numbers chapter 16, we find the fourth story which, in my opinion, is the one that's being referenced to in 1 Corinthians 10.10, neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Because it says they were destroyed of the destroyer, that kind of leaves it open, you know, what story is he referring to? And I I think it'll be clear to you. I I think you'll probably agree that it's the story in Numbers 16, and I'll, I'll show you why. Now, in Numbers chapter 16, we find the story of Korah. Remember Korah? He was the man that came in and tried to sow discord among the brethren there in the Old Testament. And, and I don't believe that 1 Corinthians 10.10 10 is referring to Korah, but you have to understand Korah to understand the application, right? So let's look at it. You're there in number 16. We're not going to take the time to go through the whole story of Korah, but let's look at enough of it to get you the context. Number 16, look at verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, so we have Korah, we have Dathan, and Abiram, these are the three main characters here, you have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, notice what it says, took men, they took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So when it says they took men, these are the men they took, 250 of them. They were princes, they were famous, they were men of renown. Look at verse 3. And they gathered themselves together 
I want you to notice this phrase, all right? Against Moses and against Aaron. Because this is what the story of Korah is about. It's about a man who is trying to fight against the God-given leadership in his life, who's trying to usurp the authority of Moses. And Korah gathers this crowd. You know, it's an Old Testament story, but the New Testament equivalent for us would be someone trying to split a church. You know, someone speaking against their pastor, trying to get a group of people to come up against their pastor here against Moses and against Aaron. And that illustration or that application is a valid application because of the fact that in the book of Acts, the children of Israel in the wilderness are referred to as the church in the wilderness. So to call it, the Bible itself calls them a church. So that's the application we're looking at. Notice what it says, verse 3. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Notice what they said about their pastor, Moses. Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then, so here's what they're saying. They're saying, anybody could do what you're doing. You, you take too much upon you. And they said, wherefore then? And this is always, listen to me, this is always the attack against the leadership. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Why do you have to act so high and mighty? You know, why do you have to be the one who makes the decisions and runs the show? Why do you? Well, uh, any one of us could do it. And we're not going to take the time to develop the story. Of course, there's a big old story there about Moses praying to God and all those things. Look down at verse number 13 just to get a little bit more of that, of that context. Uh, number 16, 13. Notice what they said. Is it a small thing? that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey, to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. So what are we seeing here? We see Korah, he goes to these, th this group of men, right? He says, hey, let's all meet at Pete's Coffee. You know, and then they get there, right? And then they're just bad-mouthing the pastor. They're saying Moses doesn't know what he's doing. Aaron doesn't know. Any one of us could teach the Bible. Any one of us could do what he does, right? This is the story. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. What's the result? Verse 20. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, notice number 16, verse 21, separate your, your, yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. For, and, and I'm sorry, verse 22, and they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. So I want you to notice there, God was getting ready to destroy all of them. And it was Moses' intercession, uh, you know, and saying, Don't destroy everybody. You know, and God says, okay, I'll just destroy Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Verse 25, and Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he, that's Moses, spake unto the congregation, saying, he's telling the congregation, saying, depart, I pray you, from the tent of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. Look at verse 31, just to save some time. Look at verse 31. And it came to pass as he, that's Moses, had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. All right, so here you have Korah trying to split the church. Moses defends his position, and God 
literally opens up the earth to bring Korah down and those that were fighting against Moses. You say, is that the story being referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10? No. But that is the context to the story. The story being referenced in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 actually begins in verse 41. Notice what it says. Number 16, verse 41. But on the morrow. But on the morrow. So please understand this. Korah just got ate alive into the earth. He literally fell straight into hell. And the next day, the children of Israel have all witnessed this. They've all seen this. And not, not a week later, not a month later, not a year later, the next day, verse 41, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Now I want you to notice the first kind of way that we can connect the story to 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10. 1 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured. So here's one, you know, hint to the fact that may, this is probably the story we're, we're dealing with. The Bible talks about the fact that they murmured. Now I want you to notice what they murmured there. No, no, notice verse 41 again. And on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, notice what they said. They said, Ye... Talking to Moses and Aaron, ye have killed the people of the Lord. And you know, I got to ask the question, you know, the question I want to ask these people is, really? I mean, did Moses make the earth open up and have Korah go down into hell? They, they, but they're looking at Moses saying, ye have killed the people of the Lord. And you know, of the Lord, really? You just watch them go straight to hell. You say, what is this story about? See, the first part of this chapter is dealing with those who would try to usurp the authority of the God-given leader. But you know, the second part of this chapter, you know what it deals with? It deals with those who would sympathize with those people. And you say, well, why would God, why would God tell us a whole story about sympathizers? You know why? Because you know what I've noticed is that when a guy tries to split a church, when a guy tries to attack a pastor, when a guy begins to spread heresy, and the man of God has to get up and call him out and throw him out, you know what ends up happening? You get a whole lot of people sympathizing with them. You know, these people with their, you know, their emotions on their sleeves and they're always, you know, just, uh, 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 you know, for the underdog and they're just always sympathizing. And that's what happens. God takes care of Korah and the next day they're looking at Moses and saying, ye have killed the people of the Lord. Verse 42. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered, notice, against Moses and against Aaron. That's exactly what it said in verse 3 that Korah and Abiram uh, and, and Dathan were doing. Now they're doing the same thing. That they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. Notice these words. The plague is begun. And God was going to destroy these people, not because they were usurping the authority of Moses, but because they were sympathizing with those who would. 
And you say, well, how do you connect this to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Because here we're told that the, the plague has begun. So God sends a plague to destroy the people. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, it said that he sent a destroyer, right? 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, are you there? Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Destroyed of the destroyer. You say, well, how, is it the plague or is it the destroyer? Let me show you how God does this. Go, go to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. If you're there in Numbers, you're going to go past Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24. Now, in 2 Samuel 24, we find yet another story where God is destroying a bunch of people for their sin. This story is not covered in 1 Corinthians 10, but I just want you to notice something that we learn in this story. 1 Corinthians 24 and verse 15. First, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, good night. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 15. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 15. 2 Samuel 24 verse 15 says this, So the Lord sent the pestilence. You see that word pestilence? The word pestilence means plague. That's what the word means. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the, notice what it says in verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand. So you say, well, I thought it was a pestilence. It was a pestilence, was, but it's an angel who's bringing the pestilence. Stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to, notice this word, destroy it. Doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians 10.10? 10? The Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel Lord was by the threshing place of Aruna the Jebusite. So we see that God sends an angel in 2 Samuel 24. And this angel is there to destroy. He is destroying. How is he doing it? Through a pestilence, verse 15. Look at verse 21. And Aruna said, Wherefore is my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar upon the, uh, unto the Lord. Notice the last part of verse 21. That the plague may be stayed from the people. So there we see how the word pestilence and the word plague is the same thing. Here's, uh, here's all I want you to see. God sends an angel to destroy, and he does that through a plague. You say, well, is, isn't, maybe this is a story referenced back in 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10. I don't think so, because 1 Corinthians 10.10 10 talks about the fact that they murmured. And the story in 2 Samuel, this didn't happen because the people murmured. It happened because David had the people counted, which is not something he was supposed to do. What I want you to notice is that when 1 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer, the destroyer there could simply be referring to an angel who's bringing a plague. Because we see that in 2 Samuel 24. And in the story of number 16, we see them being destroyed through a plague for murmuring. And, and, and you know, you're running out of stories in the Old Testament with the children of Israel being plagued. They, it happens a lot, but we're already down to number four. So that's why I believe that that's a story being referenced, for those of you that care. But go back to Numbers uh, 16. And, and let me just say this. You say, what's the application? What are we trying to be admonished of? What is it that we're trying to learn? Here's all we're trying to learn. Here's all you're trying to learn. Look, whether you come to Verity Baptist Church, or maybe you move here and go to some other good independent Baptist church that's preaching the Word of God, you say, what is the lesson that Paul wants us to learn? Here's the lesson. When the man of God ever, if he ever stands up and says, so-and-so is a false prophet, so-and-so is a heretic, they're bringing heresy into the church, we're throwing them out. 
You say, what should my response be to that? Here's what your response should be. You support them. Oh, well, should we sympathize with? No. And, and, and people say, well, why not? I mean, you know, uh, uh, the, the, how do we know that we can trust the pastor? Let me explain to you something about ministry, and, and I don't think people really think this through very hard. People who give their lives, you know, men and women who go into ministry, men who become pastors and the wives that follow them in positions of, of, of a pastor's wife, let me explain to you something. We go into this thing, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week, you know, using our house to hold people in, trying to, you know, our goal is for the church to grow, right? I don't know if you understand that. I don't care what pastor it is. I don't care what pastor you're talking about. Every pastor wants his church to grow. Every pastor wants to reach people. Every pastor wants to have people. Look, if you, if you ask any pastor in the world, would you rather preach to 50 people or 150 people? Everyone would rather preach to 150 people. I mean, we got into this thing because we want to reach people, because we want to help people, because we want to be people. And just understand this. When a pastor gets up and throws somebody out or throws an entire group out, just realize that there is no one in that church who wanted to do that less than that pastor. And the fact that he's doing it, the fact that he's doing it should prove to you that there was just really no other option. Because let me tell you something about ministry. We put up with a lot of garbage. I remember I, used to, I was talking to a pastor once, and he was telling me things about some hardship that he was going through in ministry, and I was sharing some things that we were dealing with at the time. And I remember he said this to me. He said, we put up with all of this just so we can get up and preach to somebody. And look, we're constantly dealing with people. We're constantly pe- dealing with people having bad attitudes, people overstepping, people doing things. You say, why do you put up with it? Because we want to preach to somebody. So when we get up and we're like, hey, we're going to throw out these five guys, just realize the last person who wanted to do it was the pastor. And if he's doing it, if he's doing it, it's because there really just was no other choice. If he's doing it, it's because there really just was no other reason, there's no other option, it's just, just that bad. And you, should, and you say, what should my response be? Just support him. Just support him. Should we sympathize? No, look, the, the story here is trying to show us. God plagued an entire group of people, not for usurping the authority of Moses, but for sympathizing with Korah. The next day. Notice number 16. Look, look, at, look how the story ends. Verse 47. Number 16, verse 47. Number 16, verse 47 says this. And Aaron took, and Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold... Notice, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. These are the people that are just trying to fire him. These are the people who are just trying to blame him. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700. Beside them that died about the matter of Korah. So notice, this is a separate issue. It's the very next day, but it's a separate issue. Verse 15. And Aaron returned unto Moses, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. So what, what's the fourth lesson here? The fourth lesson is that you should not sympathize with rebels. You should not side with rebels. And, you, and look, and we're not dealing with that here. Just praise the Lord. You know, so I'm not preaching this because we're having issues or whatever. I'm just, it's just good for you to know whether it's here or any other church. You know, always just give the pastor the benefit of the doubt. Always just realize that if, if, if there's a pastor is throwing anybody out of church, the, light, the least person I wanted to do that 
was a pastor. And by the way, that's why so many pastors compromise today. Because they want to preach to big crowds, so they don't ever want to take a stand. You ought to be glad, you ought to be happy that you've got a pastor who's willing to lose people for doctrine. Or willing to lose people because you just got to protect the church and you can't allow heresy to come in. And maybe it stuns our growth for a little while. But you know what? It's better to just do right and be right and stand up for what's true. So, so we learn in this chapter, you know, he gives us four examples. What are the examples? Number one, don't place idols before God. Don't place idols. Don't put something before God. And we learned last week, what's an idol? An idol is anything that replaces God or leads you away from God. If it replaces God in your life or if it leads you away from God, it's an idol. We learn that fornication is a big deal. God plagued the nation of Israel because they were fornicating. And we, and we read that story there where he, they, he goes in and, you know, uh, uh, has a, the staff there and, and uh, doesn't even tolerate it. And that's how we should live our lives. As Christians, you know, within our church and within our own homes, obviously, we should not partake in it, and we shouldn't even tolerate it. You know, it shouldn't be tolerated in our church. It shouldn't be tolerated in your home. And then tonight, we saw here that we should not complain. Don't complain. Just, you know, get out of the habit of complaining. And, and, and here's the problem that I found with people that complain is that I think sometimes they don't realize it. You know, they don't realize that they're complainers. They don't realize that they're negative. Sometimes I wish. I wish that you would come up to me and say, Pastor, am I negative? <laughs> and I can say, yes. <laughs> and I wish some people would give me, give me uh, uh, permission to call them out on every time. Because some, some people, it's every time. You can't talk to them, one, you know. If they give me the permission, you're doing it again. How you doing? Well, yeah, you're doing it again. <laughs> you know, stop it. Just quit complaining. God doesn't like it. And then the last thing there is sympathizing with rebels. Sympathizing with those that will try to hurt the church. Go, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's, let's finish up for tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition unto whom the ends of the world are come. Look at verse 12. Now, Paul just got done, you know, giving us a four-point outline about, you know, examples from the Old Testament, things that we should not be doing, things that are for our examples or for our admonition. Look at verse 12. He says this, Wherefore... That means for, for that reason, for this reason, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. So don't get on a high horse and say, oh, well, you know, the children of Israel, they were so, you know what, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And you and I can go down that road and we can start complaining and we can get into idolatry and we can do, you know, just be careful you don't get this proud, arrogant attitude. Take heed, lest he fall. In verse 13, I just want to cover this real quickly just because it's all the same context. In verse 15, he begins a new, new context, and we'll deal with that later. But in verse 13, in verse 12, he talks to us about don't think it's not possible for you to be tempted and fall. You know, be careful not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. In verse 13, he just gives us real quickly three things to consider when you are tempted. Three things to consider when you are tempted. Because that's what happened to these people. They were all tempted to do wrong. They were tempted to do wrong, and they went down that road. And now he's trying to tell us, hey, don't think, let him that think of these stand to take heed lest he fall. Don't think that it couldn't happen to you. But he says, when the temptation comes, here are three things. When it comes, here are three things to consider when you're being tempted. All right, let me give these to you quickly, and we'll be done. They're all found in verse 13. Number one, he says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. 
When you are tempted, you must remember that you are not dealing with anything that others haven't already dealt with. You, there are no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Anything you're dealing with, anything you're struggling with, anything you're being tempted with, someone else has already been tempted with it, and somebody else has already gotten victory over it. Because you know what we like to do? What we like to do is this. We like to say, oh, I know other people deal with temptation. I know other people deal with issues. I know other people deal with struggles, but I'm different. Pastor, you can help other people's marriages, but mine is different. You know what? There are no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. There is no new thing under the sun. And if other people have had marriage problems and overcame it, then you can too. If other people have had drinking problems and overcame it, then you can too. Whatever you are dealing with and being tempted with, just remember, you're not special, you're not different, you are a sinner saved by grace like everyone else, and there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. So he says, you have not dealt with anything that others haven't already dealt with. And by the way, you have not dealt with anything that others have not already had victory in. And God is no respecter of persons. If they can have victory in it, you can too. Number two. Not only does he say there is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. He also says this, secondly, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted, above that ye are able. Not only have you not dealt with anything that others haven't already dealt with and overcame, but number two, you will never be tempted above that which you are able to handle. God will never allow a temptation to come into your life that you cannot handle. He says, but God is faithful. God is consistent. God is trustworthy who will not suffer you. The word suffer there means allow you to be tempted above that ye are able. So here's what I know. Here's what I know. And I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just trying to help you out. Here's what I know. When you get drunk or when you do drugs or when you look at pornography or when you commit adultery or when you get a divorce or whatever it is, when you do it, you didn't have to. You didn't have to. Because people today, they want to act like, oh no, I've got a sickness. I've got a sickness called alcoholism. And I can't help it. No, yes you can. Because there are no temptation taken you, but such as common demand. And God is faithful, will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. So when you go down the road of temptation and sin, just realize that you chose to go down that road. Because God will never tempt you and allow a temptation that you are not able to to handle, number three. Notice what he says, last part of verse 13. We're done. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear. Number three, you will always have a way to escape from your temptations. And that's the problem. See, we want to figure out a way that we can live before a temptation. Temptations are not meant for you to live before. Look, if you got a drinking problem, don't go out on Friday night with the friends. They're all going to be drinking, but I'm going to drink water. No, you're not! God has made a way to escape. You know what it's called? It's called the front door. We are not made to live before temptation. The Bible says that we should not make provision for the flesh. So here's what I know. When we fall into temptation, we fall into temptation not because we couldn't handle it, but because we did not choose to take the way to escape. Because there's always a way to escape. 
There's always a way to get out. He promised it. But will with the temptation. God says, I will never allow a temptation to come into your life. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape. That ye may be able to bear it. So you've never dealt with anything that others have not dealt with. You will never be tempted above anything that you cannot handle. And there will always be a way to escape. You say, why did these people mess up so badly? I mean, they were in fornication. They were committing idolatry. They were, um, you know, sympathizing with rebels. They were criticizing the man of God and complaining against God. Why, why were they, you know, doing all those things? Well, here's why they were doing all those things. Because they were being tempted just like you and I get tempted. And they weren't being tempted above that which they could handle, but they just chose not to take the way of escape. So you know what? Before we get too high-minded, and I'm a fundamentalist, Baptist, and bless God, just remember, wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand to take heed. Lest he fall. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these stories and these passages that we can just, just break down, just dissect, study them out in Scripture. And you've put them there for our admonition. You've put them there as an example and an end sample that we might not lust against evil things. And Lord, I just pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to be people that do not put idols before you. And I don't know that here in the United States of America, too many of us are struggling with physical idols, but we may be setting up idols in our heart. Anything we put before God and anything we, that leads us away from God is an idol that we need to deal with. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to maintain a separation from fornication, especially for the young people that are not married, to flee fornication. And for those of us that are married, to not tolerate it in our lives. And Father, I pray you'd help us not to be complaining people, negative people, to realize that you are the one who provides for us and that manna came from heaven and we may get tired of it from time to time, but it's what you've given us. And help us, Lord, to be thankful for it and content with it. And then, Lord, help us always when there's a choice to be made to sympathize with a rebel. Help us to stand with the man of God, whoever that man is, wherever we find ourselves in, in whatever church or situation. Lord, help us to always give the man of God our loyalty. And Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to just learn how to deal with these temptations, learn how to deal with these issues. Learn, remember that there's no temptation taking us. That's not common to man. And help us to take that way of escape, Lord. And help us, Lord, never to get too proud. Too proud. And, and just to realize that anybody could fall, Lord, and help us to not go down that road. Help us to not get arrogant because pride goes before destruction. And, Lord, we thank you for these passages. We thank you for our church. We thank you for the people here, here on a Wednesday night because they love you and they want to learn your word. Lord, I pray you'd help us to apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.